Let's pray. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, we come to you in the name of Yeshua. Father, I ask that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive the things that are shared today. In the name of Yeshua, amen. Today is going to be really like two messages. I, I, wanted, I just felt led to finish up some of the Hebrew message that we gave last week. And, and, and so we're going to do that to cover up some pieces that we were just getting to, and that's in Hebrews 9. And then we're going to switch and talk some about Hanukkah and what it's all about. So we're kind of flowing from one to the other. So if you remember last Shabbat, and we were looking at, we're working through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, and bringing out its meaning, and especially how it applies in the Messianic Jewish world. And so we were working through uh, the ninth chapter, and we were talking a lot about the, the nature of the covenant and the sanctuary, and, and how the, the emphasis is that it's a better covenant. And we did make it very clear that the new covenant is new. But by saying that the new covenant is new doesn't void it of God's law, of God's Torah. Sometimes our brothers in Messiah in the larger Christian world, some of them, not all, but some of them view, their view is that they have, that the old covenant, is, since it's done away with, that the laws of God that you find in what they call the Old Testament are done away and they have no value and worth anymore and you've come into this new testament, this new era with new laws and new commandments that have never been heard of before. But that's not exactly what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that the new covenant, God says very clear in Hebrews 8, that's a quotation of Jeremiah 31, that God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Lo, not like the one I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt, even though I was a husband to them. But in this new covenant, he says that he would write his law in the heart and put it in the mind. And tied with that is also what's said in Ezekiel in 36. Ezekiel says that God says he would take out the heart of stone and he would put in a heart of flesh and he would put his own spirit in and he would cause his people to walk in his ways. He would be the driving force. He would be the energy that causes you to walk in righteousness, which is a change. You're not trying to climb your way to heaven. You're not doing good works because you want to prove to God how good of a follower you are. But it's just, it's different than that. You're doing good works because you've accepted Yeshua as the atoning sacrifice for your sin, as the one who ratifies the new covenant, and by entering into this new covenant, you realize that God is putting his commandments inside of you, and by his spirit, he is causing you to walk in his ways. Then that's a better covenant, because you don't have the weight of condemnation on you, like, man, I gotta do all these things, I gotta do all these things to be right before God. No, God has provided a way of righteousness for you through his son. In fact, what he says about followers of Yeshua, he says, you are the righteousness of God and Messiah. You're not trying to be righteous. You have to look in the mirror and accept that you are righteous. I know that's hard sometimes, especially if you just did something wrong. It's hard to look in the mirror and go, I am the righteousness of God and Messiah. Well, you can't say that if you're still walking around with that sin, but if you realize that, hey, Scripture says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and trustworthy to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once you recognize that, again, Yeshua is your righteousness. Yeshua is the one that makes you holy. Yeshua is the one that sets you apart and bring in a new covenant, and you accept that, then you can look in that mirror and say, I am the righteousness of God and Messiah. And people say, that's quite boastful. And you say, yes, it is. God is a good God. God is wonderful. And he's able to make me righteous. I mean, God took plain things and made them holy. When Moses came and he saw that burning bush with fire burning up, he heard a voice speak, take off your sandals for the ground which you're on is holy. Now, let me ask you a question. How many good deeds did that ground do to become holy? How many? How many times did it light the Shabbat candles? How many times did that ground go out and help somebody? What did that ground do? The ground did only one thing. It received the presence of God. 
It yielded itself and said, God, you reign here. You are in charge. And because of that, the ground becomes holy because it's set apart for God's purpose. So how are you going to get holy? By yielding to the Lord of heaven and saying, Lord, your way, not my way. I yield to you. And he takes you and he separates you from the kingdom of darkness, brings you into the kingdom of light, and he declares you as a holy one. How many of you know that the word saint means a holy one? I know that because of certain church tradition, people view the saint as somebody that gets decided 200 years after you've been dead and a committee gets together and decides that you did enough good works and great things and had some miracles and so they can now call you a saint. But Paul, when he writes to any of the congregations in his day, Paul says to them, you saints, you holy ones. You are a saint, you are a holy one, because God took you and set you aside for a special purpose. And when God does that, when God says, hey, you're mine, and I got some things for you to do, I got a special task for you, then you're separated apart from him, and that's what makes you holy. That's why you're holy. You can literally get little cards if you needed to introduce yourself and throw your name out. You're you're Saint Brandon. People say, hey, who are you? Saint Brandon. They're like, what? We've never heard of a Saint Brandon before. Well, you've heard of one now because the Lord of heaven set me apart, took me out of the dirt, took me over to his side of the camp, gave me new clothing, royal garments, a ring on the finger, and said, you are my son, and I have a special plan for your life. And at that point, you become a holy one. So it's important to understand that it's God who makes you holy. And in the new covenant, more than any other covenant, it is the new covenant that God makes a difference in your life. God changes you from the inside out. It's inside that a change takes place. Deep inside that he makes you different. And he brings that treasure out. See, for a new covenant believer, it's just a matter of acknowledging the truth of what God has done. And to yielding yourself and letting him move that and bring that forth. So those are some of the things that we were talking about. And really putting that emphasis of Yeshua being the mediator of the new covenant. He's a mediator of the new covenant. And the part I want to talk Focus on just a little bit. It starts at verse 16. Now I'm going to be reading from, I got the New King James here in my hand today, and this is how it reads. Starting at Hebrews 9, verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. But when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to law, almost all things are purified without blood, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now it goes on to tell us that the the Mosaic tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly one. Now I want to give a little insight into these passages from a Messianic Jewish perspective and how we view that. We're not the only ones that view that. There's some in the body of Messiah who who get it. And and it's going to sound like a nuance of a point I'm trying to make, but I think it's very important. A lot of translations read just like I read with the New King James. It goes back to using the word testament. And we talked about that last week, that the Hebrew word and the Greek word, well, the Greek word that's used for testament, where it's translated covenant in some places, and testament in other places means covenant. That's what the word means. Testament means a covenant. It doesn't mean a book. Okay, and that's how we look at it. And like I said, it's hard to get away from that because most of us have Bibles where there's broken up into a section that says the Old Testament and a section that says the New Testament. And because of that, some people get, get into a misleading understanding of thinking, oh, that's the Old Testament. It's done away with. And now I got the New Testament and I'm gonna follow that. 
Well, that, that was something that was added much later in life. Yeshua never referred to what people today call the Old Testament as the Old Testament. He called it the Psalms, the, the law, the Psalms, and the, and the prophets. In Jewish understanding, we as a word that we use. It's the word Tanakh. Everybody say that to me. Tanakh. Make sure you get that at the end. Tanakh. And so the Tanakh is an acronym that stands for the Torah, which is the law, and N is for the Nevi'im, which, which, which is talking to the prophets, and Ketavim is the, the wisdom books, what we call the Psalms. And Yeshua says concerning himself that all that's in the law and the prophets and the, and, and, and the Psalms, he says, they all speak of me. So what people call the Old Testament, Yeshua says, speaks of me. You'll find me in all of that. And that's why we can look at the sacrificial system. That's why we can look at Passover. We can look at all those things and say, yeah, Yeshua is the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Yeshua is the, the, the scapegoat at Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, that, that carries the sins that carry it out of the people. He is the fulfillment of that. He brings the full understanding of what those things mean. And so that's important that we get that, that when we talk about testament, we're not talking about a book, but we're talking about covenants. Now, the other thing we want to bring out very quickly is that there are many covenants in the Bible. It's not just an old covenant and a new covenant. There's a Mosaic covenant, there's a Davidic covenant, there's a covenant made with Abraham, there's a covenant made with Noah. I am so glad that the covenant with Noah is still in place today. Especially when there's a rainy season. And it rains and it rains and it rains. If there was no covenant with, of the Noahic covenant, if it was done away with, we all would have to invest in an ark and make sure we have one just in case things get flooded over and God decides to destroy the whole earth of the flood. But according to God's word and his covenant with Noah, he would not destroy the whole earth with a flood again. He won't do that. So his covenant is still in place to this day. I am so glad it has not been done away with. His promises to David, having one who sits on the throne, who he refers to as the anointed one, the Mashiach, the one who will come and who would reign, sitting on the throne of David forever and ever. I am so glad that that covenant hasn't been done away with because we have no place for Yeshua to return to establish his reign and his rule. His promises to Israel have not been set aside. He's not kicked Israel to the curb. The gifts and callings of God, it says in scriptures, is without repentance. God's going to fill the promises he made to the house of Israel and Judah. In fact, the coming of Yeshua is, is, it is totally connected to God fulfilling those promises that he made way back to a guy by the name of Abram. I'm glad that covenant's not done away with. So there are many, many covenants. Even if you study, you'll find that God makes covenants to various nations, Egypt, Ethiopia, all kinds of places. You read the scripture like, wow, he's promised these things to these different nations. He hasn't done away with those things. He's going to fulfill all that. So we need to understand when the scriptures speak of the old covenant, it doesn't mean the old book. It means the, the covenant, it says very clearly what that covenant is. The one I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. We can go back. So which one was that? Oh, that was the one with Moses. He goes up, he goes to the mountain, he gets the commandments, he speaks it over the people. They, it doesn't take long before they start messing up. And he keeps going on, he renews those tablets, he gets over, they finally get to sprinkle all the people, get the blood on them and all that. And, and even with all of that, we see over and over again, you read through the judges and you see disobedience. You read, you read through all the different kings and you see disobedience over and over again. You'd see some righteousness in there, individuals and others standing up, sometimes a righteous king. But overall, you see a, a rebellion especially the sin of idolatry over and over again. And at some point, enough's enough, and God brings forth what he said he would do. And he scattered them to the four corners of the earth. And he brought judgment. But it's during that time of all that going on that Jeremiah, who's speaking about the coming judgment, and people are not believing him, but he's saying it's coming. But then he says, but... God had him speak of things to come. God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. So we learn that the new covenant is still with the same people as the Mosaic one was made. It's still with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
God didn't say, I'm tired of the Jewish people. Let me go find another people to make a covenant with. No, it's still with the Jewish people. Somebody says, well, hold it. What if you're not Jewish? Are you outside of that? No, you're not outside of that because the scripture says that the one who ratifies that covenant, Yeshua the Messiah, that whoever calls on his name and believes on him will be given life and able to enter into that covenant. Though the covenant is made with the house of Israel and Judah, it extends to all who believe. So it overflows to other people. Just like the Mosaic covenant did. It was made with the house of Israel and Judah and the mixed multitude or anybody who joined themselves to the camp. There were rules and regulations about how they were to live within the Mosaic covenant. God made provision that those who, sit, who wandered, them way, wandered, wandered over into the space of Israel, God had provision to, to provide for them. He goes like, what are you doing here? Get out. No, he had provision for them. He had a lot to say about the stranger that dwells within the gates. He cared a lot about the strangers and had laws to protect them. And it's no different today. As we read Romans 11, it says that those who are not Jewish, the Gentiles, who believe in Yeshua, it says that they are grafted into that tree, that Jewish tree, that olive tree that's Jewish, that the non-Jew who believes in Yeshua is made to be grafted into that tree, to partake of that tree so that you have a tree that's a Jewish tree but has Gentile grafted in branches so that you have Jew and Gentile together in Messiah, one, to give glory to God. This is the type of stuff God is doing. It's good stuff. So we're looking at that. So let's get back to this whole testament, testator thing. The reason why I'm taking time for this because it can lead you to an idea that's okay but it's not exactly the truth. See, in our culture... We have this concept of last will and testament. Do we not? We understand that that means. Especially if you came from a very, 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 very wealthy family. Everybody showed up for the reading of the will. Just to see whether or not there's something for you in it. And so, you, so this idea of last will and testament is simply this. That the person who who has made a will before, while they were alive, that when they die, they will give you a whole bunch of stuff. Who gets what? I leave the house to so-and-so. I leave the Mercedes to this person. This track of land I give here. 20,000 is count for this person, this, that, and the other. When my father passed, he did that same thing very happen. All the family was called together. My father had a will open up. And he had money set aside, property set aside, different things set aside. And he just went down the line of all my brothers and sisters and said, who got what? He had already set certain things aside. We didn't know all he was doing all this, but he did. He had things like uh, tools and this, that, and the other. Kind of had a sense of who wanted what and laid everything out. And y'all just sit there. Hopefully everybody's happy about what they've heard. What? Elaine got the Snoopy collection? No, no, I like the Snoopy collection. It was for me. Sometimes people don't, they don't get happy and lawyers get involved, it gets tied up in court and, and all the money gets spent by all the time it's all said and done because everybody's fighting over every little piece they can get. And that's a sad thing. They all end up going to lawyers and you see it all dwindle down to pay the lawyer's bill. And at the end, no one has anything because you don't want your sibling to have the thing that you wanted. It's amazing at funerals, and some of you can know about this. Sometimes it does not bring out the best in people. And I've been through a number of funerals. And let me tell you, sometimes it does not bring out the best in people. Some really nasty stuff can come forth. That's why if you're ever involved in a funeral and you have to, you need to start to pray immediately. But that's the concept that we have, this last will and testament. When Diane passes on and vows us her life, we're going to gather at her house and we're going to get her will and we're going to look at it and say, what did she leave me? What did she leave me? And we all understand that. And because that's the word that's used here, and that's, that's how people look at it. And this is one of the things that drove the translators, especially in the English translation, because they're pulling from the Western culture. And that's the only way they can see it, because they're looking at Old Testament. Well, that means like, the, okay, last will and testament. That's what this is talking about. Well, I got news for you. That's not what this is talking about. 
Remember the word testament means covenant. And the Jewish concept of covenant is not about waiting for the person to die in order to enter into this relationship and agreement together where certain things are promised to you. Abraham and God went into covenant. Neither of them died for that covenant to be enacted. Something else died, though. Some animals were taken and cut in half, and they split it apart. I know this is weird. We don't do this today. And the people would pass through the pieces of the animal that you cut in half. That's so weird, isn't it? We don't quite do that today. You know, we don't. That's, I mean, when's the last time you're at the car dealership, ready to buy a car, and when you get ready to get the final thing, you, you know, you reach down in your bag and pull out an animal and plonk and split it apart and tell the, tell the salesman pass through the pieces. So that may not be a bad idea. No offense to any car salesman in here, but you guys don't have a good reputation about things when it comes to selling cars. You always say people, the view is that you're going to try to rip people off. That's the view that's out there, whether it's right or wrong. That's the view that a lot of people have. But, you know, the concept that you're saying, look, I pass through these pieces, and if I break this covenant, may this happen to me as it did to this animal. Maybe if we did that with car salesmen, we'd get a better deal. I don't know. Bring that back. That sure change America a lot, wouldn't it? But that's the way people did things in the old Hebrew way of doing things. You pass through the pieces. That was the understanding of making covenant. But it's not that the person that you're making covenant with dies. It's something else that dies. That something else is the testator, not the person making the covenant. So we're going to walk through this a little bit. I'm going to dig down into a little bit. Okay, so. Where there's a testament, there must also be a necessity, be the death of the testator. Now, a lot of people read this. Where there's a testament, you're waiting, there must be the death of the person making the covenant. That's how a lot of people read this. Because the next verse says, for a testament is enforced after men are dead. See, Ralph, there you go. What are you talking about? It's something else. It says after men are dead. Well, let's, let's look at that. Verse 17, for a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it's no strength at all while the testator lives. That's KJV and New KJV, King James. The New Living Translation, the will, it actually says will. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. The New International Version, because a will, they use the word will also, is enforced only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. The NASB, New American Bible Standard, now they get the right with the, Hebrew, the Greek here. For a covenant, ah, oh, for a covenant is valid, but then it says only when men are dead. For it's never enforced while the one who made it lives. Hmm. Uh, ASV, American Standard Version. For a testament is a force where there has been death. Oh, isn't it strange? Where there has been death. doesn't say anything about a man. For it does never avail why he that made it lived it. But he says he did go back to the he. Then there's a translation called Young's Literal Translation. If you can get a hold of that, it's a good one to have. Because the, the scholars that did that translation tried to be as literal as they knew how and did as little interpretation as they could. And this is how they read. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast. Since there's no force at all while the covenant victim liveth. Let me read that again to you. For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it is no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. Well, let's go a little further. Let's look at the words involved. For a testament is in force. Now, some translations say the word will. Well, the word that's used here is not the word will. It's the word covenant. So let's just get that straight, that for a covenant is in force. Now, the next part says, a lot of translations say, men are dead. Well, that's not what the Greek says at all. It doesn't say what men are dead. It has just the word nekros, 
which means one that has breathed its last. It doesn't have to be a man. It can be a thing. It can be something else. So it doesn't even have the Greek word man in the translation. That's the translator trying to make sense of it in the culture of last will and testament as opposed in the culture and the context of Scripture, which is covenant of the splitting of the animals. And so it says, so the, the meaning here, that cross just means one that has breathed his last, to be enforced is to be made sure, to be made steadfast. So let's, re- let's rephrase it according to a more literal translation. A covenant is enforced when the one that has breathed his last, now here's the question. Is it true that people who make covenant must die before a covenant is put into force? No, it's not true. We see the Bible's full of covenants. One with Noah, Noah didn't die. God surely didn't die. One with Abram, Abraham didn't die. God surely didn't die. The one with Moses, Moses didn't die at that time at the making of the covenant, nor did the house of Israel. They all were still alive when the covenant was made. But something did die. At Noah's thing, he sacrificed an animal as soon as he got off the ark. When Abraham was making covenant, he took animals and split them in half, and they went through the pieces. On the Mosaic covenant, they used the blood of bulls and goats, not while they were alive. They killed them and took the blood from them, and they sprinkled on the people. So something died, but it wasn't a man in this place of making the covenant. It wasn't the person making the covenant. Do you understand? It's an animal that was sacrificed. That's the covenantal victim. Abraham, Mosaic, the Noahic covenant, all involved sacrifices of an animal. So here's the question. So who is the one who must have breathed his last as the covenant victim to bring the covenant? It's Yeshua. It's Yeshua. But the covenant's made by the Father. The Father is making covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, and Yeshua offers himself up as the covenantal victim, as the sacrifice that had to be made so the covenant can be arranged. They didn't kill off the people or they didn't kill off God or the people to make the covenant. Yeshua offered himself up as the atoning sacrifice. So the testator is not the one who makes the will and you have to wait until he dies to get the goods. The testator is the one who is sacrificed to enact the covenant. His covenant, not his will. Yeshua did not use bulls and goats, but he used himself. His own blood to ratify the new covenant. Yes, he had to die, but not to leave you his last will and testament, but to ratify the covenant of his father. His father made the covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, and Yeshua offered his blood to ratify that covenant. Greek scholars say this, a covenant is ratified or brought into force or in effect when the covenant victim known as the sacrifice is put to death. Otherwise, the covenant has no strength at all while the testator, the covenant victim, sacrifice is alive. Then look at verse 18. See, that that opens it up to get the understanding. Therefore, not even the first was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. This is Yeshua at the Passover Seder. This is the blood. See the same wording? See the parallels that's going there? Moses says, he's got bulls and goats. They got the blood in the thing. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Yeshua is sitting there at his last Passover Seder. And he holds up the cup. He says, this is the cup of the New Testament, of my blood, the new covenant for your sins. He's letting them know, I'm going to pour out my blood for you. I'm going to shed. I am the sacrificial victim. I am the bull and goats of the new covenant. And the good thing about that is the scripture says that the blood of Yeshua speaks of greater things than the blood of bulls and goats. 
Because his blood doesn't simply cover you over. But his blood cleanses you. Your conscience makes you holy, makes you righteous. Do you see the slight nuance in that and why it's important to get it? I mean, last will and testament, that's cool, yeah, but that's not what it's saying. God is making covenant of passing through the pieces. It's the blood of Yeshua that's been shed to bring you into his new covenant. He is the covenant of victim, but the covenant is made with the Father, and you enter into that. He's not leaving you a last will and testament of words that here's the things I'm leaving to you. No, he told you what the nature of the covenant was before he even went to the tree. He told you his blood was going to ratify it, and you knew what was in that covenant even before he was nailed to the tree, even before he died. That God would write his Torah in your hearts and minds and cause you to walk in his way. That had already been established. So it's not a matter of just reading the last will and testament. It's a matter of accepting the, the terms of the covenant and the promises that he has made inside. Do you get that? All right. Praise the Lord. Now, in this Hebrew chapter, early at the beginning of it, the ninth chapter, he, the, the writer was talking a little bit about the holy place. And he mentioned that in one of the holy places, he mentioned about the candlestick. And the candlestick that he's referring to, the word that's used in Scripture, is the word menorah. That's the candlestick that he's referring to. And so it'd be a little appropriate to talk a little bit about that candlestick today, since we are in the season of Hanukkah. Now, for us in the Messianic Jewish world, Hanukkah is just part of who we are and what we do. We don't give any much thought to it. It just flows with who we are as a, a congregation of Jews and non-Jews who come together, who are following a, a cycle that ties back to the olive tree. We have no problem. But sometimes people go, well, I, I, what about Hanukkah? I mean, isn't that a Jewish holiday? Yes, it is. But I don't know of any place that says if you're not Jewish, you couldn't celebrate it. Purim. It's a Jewish holiday. And you find that in Scripture. In, in, in the book of Esther, at the end of it with Mordecai, when, the, when, when, the, when Haman wanted to destroy the Jewish people, he wanted to wipe them out. He wanted to destroy them. And Esther had to go and approach the king, knowing that she could have the signal of death, that she'd be put to death. But she prayed and got everybody else praying in the Jewish community, and she went forth, and the king gave favor to her, and the whole story ends up showing that, yeah, this Haman guy was trying to arrange to kill off all the Jewish people, but God turns it around, and he gives the right for the Jewish people to defend themselves against the attack of the decree to kill the Jewish people, and they did, and they were victorious. And this wasn't even in the land of Israel. It was outside of the land. And they won this battle. And when it was done, of course, she's Queen Esther. She has a little bit of Floridian power. And Mordecai gets raised up to be the right-hand man to protect the king. And in their position, they put out a decree that amongst the Jewish people, they're there to celebrate the Feast of Purim forever. And here we are, thousands of years removed from that decree, and guess what? The Jewish people are still celebrating Purim. But it was always understood that others could come alone and celebrate too if they believe in the God of the Jewish people, the God of Israel, and say, you know what? We believe that the God of Israel is the only true God, and we align ourselves with him. And so we're going to celebrate, or as one Gentile Moabite lady said, your God is my God and your people are my people. And that was Ruth, the Moabitess. 
Some people say, well, she was a convert. I, I don't believe she was a convert. I think she was Ruth the Moabitess who embraced the true living God. She converted in the sense of her spirit and soul, but she didn't stop in a sense saying, well, I'm no longer from Moab. No, she's from Moab. The scripture always referred to her as Ruth the Moabitess. And we know she wasn't fully even in because she could glean the corner of the fields because she was a stranger dwelling in the midst. And she married into the Jewish people a Jewish man twice. It's a second husband. But this time, he lived for a long time, had an offspring that eventually led to David, King David, which, of course, through the time, eventually leads to Yeshua the Messiah. So this Gentile woman gets in on the, on the, as part of the lineage that leads to Yeshua the Messiah for the Jewish people. God has always opened the door for non-Jews to be a part of his people when they rejoice in him. And so what about Hanukkah? Very quickly, the background, I want to spend a lot of time, but it's very simple. I'll make it a very simple story. Some people refer to this as the story between the Testaments because it's from the Tanakh, and then the Gospels and the apostolic writings hadn't been done yet. So it's this period of time where there's no writings, no prophets, they're not speaking. It's in a sense a period of season that God is quiet. And before that time, there was a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, who many will say was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Daniel that speaks of this guy rising up, this beast rising up, and having this power to, to, to go quickly and to, to rule the land. And if you read the story about Alexander the Great, that's exactly what he did. He took over a lot of the known world in that day in a very quick time as a very young man. He was a victorious as a young man, as a warrior. And he's wiping out people left and right. If you ever watched the movie of Alexander the Great, he was ruthless. But they had some customs in those days that were a little bit different. When they would defeat a people, they didn't just wipe them out like some people might do today. They would allow you to still have some of your practice as long as you gave tribute back to uh, the conqueror. Set up a few statues in his name and that sort of thing. So there came a time as Alexander was moving through and he wanted to come in. And Israel at that time was under one of the certain rulers of that time. And Israel would not, had kind of aligned itself maybe with the wrong people. <laughs> he wasn't with Alexander the Great, and Alexander didn't like that so much. So he came in to conquer them. Of great power. Who could resist his battle? Except some things were happening behind the scenes. He was having these dreams. And he had this dream of this particular, he thought it was an angelic being coming to him and speaking good things on him. And the story goes, as he was getting his troops, surely he was going to wipe out the priests of Israel and everything. And they aligned their people. The priests got their priests together, and the high priest that year led out, and they went out to meet him. When he came up, instead of conquering them, Alexander the Great gets off of his horse, and he goes and he salutes which in those days, the way you salute, you bowed to the high priest, which blew away all the generals around him like, what is he doing? That's not the usual standard way we do things here. These people weren't for us, and you come in there bowing to them? And then he turned and explained, that man is the same face of the man in the dreams I've been having. And so he refused to conquer. And then the high priest came out and read to him from the book of Daniel and say, you are the fulfillment of the prophecy of this God, this beast that will rise up in power. And he was so impressed with that, that instead of destroying the Jewish people, he said, I'm going to let you guys live, survive, and continue your sacrifices and continue your worship. And, you know, and, and, that, and, and, and that's it. And we'll have a treaty together and we'll work together. And, and you don't have to worship any of the Greek gods. Your God is true. And you only have to worship him. And that's an amazing story. Sadly, it didn't stay amazing. Because 
on one hand, it was a good thing for the Jewish people. They were so excited that for what Alexander did that many of the Jewish people wanted to honor him. They named their children. That's why the name, if you study history, you find that Alexander became a very popular name in Jewish circles. That's a Greek name. But you would find a lot of Jewish people with that name because they wanted to say, hey, this guy was so kind to us. And he allowed them to, to live. But he also had this partnership. And in that partnership, eventually, Alexander the, died and his kingdom was split into four and, and different people ruled over it. And I won't spend a lot of time in the history in between that. But simply to say that during that time, the Jewish people began to walk away from their Jewish culture and Torah and began to embrace the culture of the Greeks, which in those days was worshiping many gods. And the gymnasiums were built. The Greeks were big into these, these, these gymnasiums where you would go. We get part of our Olympics from this, where you went out and competed. The men competed, uh, most of the time in the nude. And, uh, the, you know, they were spear throwing and battling and all kind of things of that nature. And the person who would win would get a crown where he would be named that he was a god now over all. And the Jewish people began to lean towards that and forget Torah and forget the sacrifice. And we want to be Greek. They're more advanced than we are. We don't want an old-fashioned one God. They got many gods and they got the gymnasiums and they're ruling the earth. And so they went over into that. And over the time, they forgot their God, the God of Israel. They forgot Yah. And they turned and followed after Greek ways, worshiping Greek gods. That is what opened the door that led to them being oppressed later. There was a particular guy who came on the scene. Anybody remembers his name? Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman. He believed that he, he wanted to conquer a certain area. He was on his way to Egypt trying to conquer it. He lost. And so he figured he'd pick an easier target. So he came to Jerusalem and he ransacked the temple. He took a pig and offered it up on the sacrifice unto Zeus. He had a statue of himself built in the temple, in the courtyard, for people to come and worship and commanded that people would worship him as God. Sadly, many of the priests did. But one group of priests says, no, we're not going to do this. This guy has done so much evil. Because he passed decrees that Torah scrolls should be destroyed. Anyone caught studying Torah would be put to death. He passed decrees that said that if you circumcise your children according to the Mosaic law, you would be, your child would be put to death in front of you and then you would be put to death. This is where the game that you know so much about that has a cute song, I have a little dreidel, I made it out of clay. Well, that dreidel thing was a means to study Torah. So when the guy would come in to see if you were studying Torah, they would have the dreidel and they would spin it and they would think they were just playing some kind of gambling game and they would leave them alone. That's the history of the dreidel, where it came from. It was not originally invented to be a children's game as it is today, but it was a way of throwing off Epiphany's groups and armies. They would come in and say, hey, what are you guys doing? We're just in here gambling, playing a game. They go, oh, okay, we'll leave you alone. He did some wicked things. He killed babies and mothers who were pregnant because they were caught studying Torah. He was known for his wickedness, burning people alive. And there came a point where he wanted the priests, priests of Israel, to offer up sacrifices to him, for him. And some of the priests were about to do it when one of the priests of a particular family, what family? The Maccabees, said, we're not going for this. And he stood up and he slew the priests. And then other priests rose up and they beat off that army, the Syrian army, and they 
went off into the hills and they eventually gathered and formed groups that could fight back and they fought and they fought and they fought and the Maccabees became a name known and they fought until against unbelievable odds were able to make their way back to Jerusalem and regain the Holy Land, tear down the idols that had been put in there, destroy and cast out those who defiled that temple, and they sought to rededicate now the temple that had been defiled to the worship of the one true God. Tradition states that when they came in, and one of the things required for dedicating the temple had to do with the menorah, seven stick, seven branch candlestick, the menorah that was in the temple. And it's believed by that time, in the tabernacle, it may have been smaller, according to Talmudic references, that by the, um, by the time of the tabernacle being built, it had become huge <laughs> later on in life. They made it a lot bigger. It stood almost six feet. The priests would come in, had oil, and they liked those. And according to scriptures, you can read in Exodus 27 through, through about Exodus 35, when it talks about the, the candlestick, the menorah, it talks about it being lit from evening to morning all the time. It was a continual light. And it was the only light in the holy place because it was a tent and you went in and it provided the light so people could see. And the tradition says when they came in, they only found one vow of oil that had not been polluted by the Syrians. And this one vow could last for a day. And they're like, oh well. They start taking out stones and stuff and cleansing them, getting the pig's blood and removing them and placing them with new stones. And, and they sit there and say, well, we'll just light this for this one and, and we'll make more as we rededicate the temple to God. And tradition says a miracle, a miracle took place that instead of that one little vial of oil lasting for a day, it lasted for eight days. And at the eighth day, they had more made and then they can continue. Now, somebody said, well, where, where is all of this? This story of this. Well, it's been given down through history. It's in the book of the Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha. It's Hanukkah itself is mentioned in Scripture. But a lot of people don't know that it's there and that it's mentioned. Turn over to John 10, verse 22. It says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem. Do you know what the feast of dedication is? It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah. That's the feast of dedication. That's what it means. The word means to dedicate. It was winter. Yeah, we're kind of right in the right season right now. And Yeshua walked in the temple in Solomon's portico. Then the Jews surrounded him, the Judeans, and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Yeshua answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall not perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then they pick up stones to stone him. And he said, many good works I've shown you from my Father. Which of these works do you stone me? And they said to him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Yeshua answered them, it is not written in your law, it says you are gods. So if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you, not say, do you, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the word, world, you are blasphemy because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I 
in him. That's the Hanukkah message that Yeshua gave. <laughs> that was his message for Hanukkah. Tell us, are you the Messiah? Look, guys, you can read the verses before that. I've told you many times. I've explained to you. I've done it by works. I've done it by signs. And if you don't believe the works that are being presented for you, then you're not going to believe me. And he goes on, he speaks of his father, and he proclaims and he brings them out of a place because they understood that, yes, they were looking for a deliverer. Understand, this is Hanukkah. This is the feast of dedication. This is a feast that to this day that the Jewish world looks to to remember that when they've come under persecution, that God sent them a deliverer. Now, modern Judaism extends it to any struggle, not even among Jewish people, but any group that struggles. And they view lots of people as Maccabees. Anybody who rises up to defend their people, that's the modern concept. But that has come over 1,800 years. At that time, that wasn't the thought. The thought was very simple. The Romans are persecuting us. Years ago, a guy by the Maccabees rose up and gave us power once again and put off the pagans. We need a deliverer now. We need one who will put off the pagans once again. And so often, even among Yeshua's own circles, even Judas, who was a zealot, felt, yeah, if we could just get the Yeshua to confront the people, they'll see he's the Messiah and he'll use his power to wipe them all out and he'll establish his rule over the earth. They didn't understand that the Messiah must first come and pay for the sins of the people. They didn't understand the dimension of rededication, that individuals' temples are, are, individuals' bodies are the temples of God and need to be rededicated, that that must happen first before God comes to bring his rule. Yes, there, lest, lest there be no one that can be in his kingdom. God had to provide a way to rededicate not only this temple, but his people so that he could receive them into his presence. And everybody was trying to force Yeshua to come as the as, as Messiah who would reign and, and put down all the enemies. He said, no, you guys don't understand. I must first come as Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering one who suffers for the sins of the people so that they can be atoned for. That's what I must do first. But he also wanted to correct the understanding of the Messiah because they only wanted to make him a great human being. And this is not the only place that he does this. He says, look, when David says, Lord, my Lord said unto my, the Lord says unto my Lord, oh, who's he talking about? Is, it, is David Lord? Who's Lord? And they wouldn't answer that. But he was again trying to get them to see that the Messiah had a divine dimension to him. He is the son of God. And that you need to recognize that, that he's not just a human being. And Yeshua is declaring and hinting to him his deity at that point, something they weren't willing to recognize. They just wanted to use him as a military leader. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the Lord of all. I'm the son of the very God. I was there when everything was spoken into existence. Nothing was made apart from me. Do you, you don't understand who you're dealing with because, you know, I've, I've veiled myself in hum, humanity. I've emptied myself, as it says in Scripture, of uh, my deity, and yet you see me found as a man. But you don't understand who I am. Even his own disciples didn't know. When they were in the boat and they began to, to do all this crazy stuff, and he looks at the wind and the storm, and he says, shut up! And it stops right on that spot that his own disciples that walked with him, seen miracles, seen signs and wonder, said, who is this man? See, they, didn't, they were like, wow. You know, we, you know, great to have a prophet on board, but this guy is commanding the storms, the sea. He doesn't say, God, could you stop the storms? He's not like Elijah who said, oh, Father in heaven, please rain down fire from heaven. He just says, stop, shut up, showing that he has authority and power. He doesn't have to wait and pray and ask, but the authority resides within himself. Do you understand? This Yeshua, this Jesus, 
is more than just a human being. And he gives a hint of that at this season of Hanukkah. This is when he is confronted with, if you're the Messiah. He says, well, let me help you to understand and raise your understanding of who the Messiah is. He's not just a political leader. But if you really want to talk about God's anointed and anointed one, this is the very one that was in the beginning that spoke all things. This is the one that the angels bow down and worship. This is the one that God says that all the angels worship him. Do you guys understand that? And I don't see you bending the knee. He's trying to raise that understanding to a higher level. And so one of the things we should think about during the season of Hanukkah is not only the deliverance that comes, but who does it come from? Who is the one that brings that deliverance? That's what we want to look at. That's what we want to focus on. There are a lot of things associated with the season. I already told you the tradition of, of the, 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 that's been handed down about the miracle, but there's another thing associated with that that scholars would say it's probably more of the reasons why Hanukkah is eight days is because when they regained the space, they had missed the season of Sukkot. Josephus brings this up. And Josephus wrote a lot about Jewish practices. He says, well, you know, they had missed the season of Sukkot, which is eight days, if you count Shemini Yaseret. And he said that they missed that, and so they were having a Sukkot out of seasons. And now that we've gotten to a place that we can really rededicate the temple, we're going to celebrate it like Sukkot did before. This is what Josephus said they did. And so they celebrated for eight days as they were having sort of like what was done under Solomon when he dedicated the temple, that it was a long feast at that time as well. And so that's where the eight may have originally come from. We don't know for sure. But nevertheless, the Talmud tells the tradition of the story of the miracle of the lights and has been passed down for a long time, over 2,000 years. That's been stead and, and stead. Now, a couple of things, once again, back. Sometimes non-Jews say, well, isn't it a Jewish holiday? I started off with that. Yes, it is. But if you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those on the outside who worship foreign gods came and defiled the temple that the God that you serve established, why would you not want to celebrate its being restored? One of the things that if you are a non-Jew and you've been grafted into the olive tree is that you partake of that olive tree the cycles and the life cycles of that tree. You find yourself saying like Ruth, your people are my people and your God is my God. And you begin to identify and associate and your life begins to flow with the life of that olive tree, which includes Hanukkah. Because we would not want to see the temple defiled. We want it to see rededicated to the service of God. But lest you get caught up in just the physical temple, what I think is more important is the understanding of your temple, that it's dedicated to God, that you're living for him. It's easy to say, I love the Lord, but to go and do the opposite of that love brings shame to his name. You want to be one that has the light rekindled inside of you. Jewish tradition is that you take, now this is not a menorah, this is a Hanukkah. Some people call it a menorah, but it's not. It's a Hanukkah because it has eight. A menorah has seven. It has eight because it's not saying this is what was in the temple. It's saying this is to remember what happened in the eight days of Hanukkah, so it's called a Hanukkah. Now, there are some in the Messianic Jewish circle, a lot of people don't know this, and not only in the Messianic Jewish circle, but even throughout history, there are different practices. They just didn't went out to be the most common practice. Even in traditional Judaism, there were those who took a menorah and let it be lit for eight days. In the Messianic circles, Michael Rudolph, the one that established his community long ago, circumcised the Hanukkah. 
and made it a menorah by cutting off the additional ones. So if you go to his house, this is beautiful, what used to be a Hanukkah that's now a menorah that has seven branches with the one in the middle, the oil type, the oil inside, it's beautiful. And he, leaves, he lights all of them for the whole eight days because he wants to focus on the rekindling of the temple and the light that's lit all the time. And it's an interesting thing about it, there were other Jewish people who did that. But you know, traditions and practices, one wins out, one doesn't. There was a fight among Shema and Hillel. These were the two greatest names of rabbis who influenced Judaism to this day. Shema felt that you, on the first day, you light them all of the Hanukkah. They had already created the Hanukkah. And you leave them all lit, and you remove a light each day to show that it's Dwelling down to the one. Hillel, on the other hand, says, no, the miracle becomes greater. So you light one and then you increase it more and more and more. And they each had their own disciples and they, only, they did with their practices, but we know which one worn out. Hillel worn out. Shammai people did not. And today, most of Judaism will light additional candle each day for the whole eight days. These are traditions that God did not establish, but God did not say you could not do. Romans 14 speaks of that we can have these different things. If you read 14th chapter and one man regards one day above another and one practice against another, as long as it doesn't undercut the word of God, people can develop different traditions. I would imagine on a Friday night, bringing in a Shabbat meal, that we didn't all do it exactly the same way. There may be some similarities, but I imagine there's some prayers and blessings that are different, and that is okay. We don't have to be a carbon copy of everything. God has relationships individually with each and one of you, and he also has relationship corporately. When we're corporate, we do some corporate things. On individual levels, people may pray differently. People may put on clothing that's different to pray in their closet. And that's okay, as long as it doesn't contradict God's word. But one of the traditions is taking the middle candle, which is the blue one here, which is called the shamash. It means servant. And it's used to light the other lights. So that light comes from the shamash. And I just want to read a few verses to kind of close this out with light. The Gospel of John, first chapter. We'll start at verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. This is very much, from a Jewish perspective, you hear Hanukkah all through it because you understood that the menorah gave light to the holy place and the light to men. And so they understood this to be a passage that also pointed back to Hanukkah, that, that light would come. Well, we know that the one who gives that light is Yeshua. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Yeshua spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Yeshua is the light. He's the one that comes to brighten up hearts that are, are dark. You want to come out of darkness? Come to Yeshua. He is that light. Gospel of John twelve forty six. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. If anyone hear my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. But I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Again, he says he is the light. So Yeshua is the light. He's the one that brightens our heart. He's the one that allows us to see. Now, if you would turn over, I think it's Matthew 5. I'm going to get a little personal now. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. 
A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Hanukkah is about rededication. About rededicating the temple of God for his service. The Bible says your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You're rededicating yourself to the Lord. God says you're to be a light to the earth. He's made you a light. And you're to live your life in such a way that by your mitzvot, your good works, your deeds, not that you secure yourself for heaven, that's not what he says, but that by your good deeds that you live in such a way that you glorify your Father in heaven and become a light to men to draw them to God. This is who he's called us to be. We're to be light in a dark world. When we hear bad news about how bad it's getting in this world and how dark it is, that's when we should step up and say, raise your hand. I say, why are you raising your hand? Because I'm a light. Put me in the darkness and watch me shine. Put me in the darkness and watch people find their way out of the darkness. Do you understand? That's who you are. That's the call on your life. You're to be a light to a dark world. You don't have to put lights on your house to be a light. You need to just walk in the things of the kingdom. Walk in love. Care for one another. Demonstrate his love to your neighbors. And they will be drawn to you. They will say, wow, that person shines. And they want to know why. And it's your opportunity. Say, well, it's not because of me, of my own, but because of the one that lives in me, Yeshua the Messiah. He's the light that lights the heart of every man that comes into the world.